Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Well, good morning, North Monroe. Uh, As we head into Memorial Day and we get a kind of weekend to relax and celebrate, we definitely do not want to pass the opportunity to to remember and to uh, think about and to honor those those who have given their lives, but also their families uh, who have who have lost the loved ones who have given their lives for our freedom. And, uh, you know, we 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 get to live an awesome life because of that. And uh, so we can't say thank you enough. Uh, let's pray together as we, get, as we begin. Father, um, just thank you uh, once again, just as we recognize those who have made huge sacrifices um, of their lives, but also of seasons of their lives to go and serve and uh, to protect uh, these freedoms that we enjoy. We pray for those families who have lost loved ones, that you would be their comfort. And God, we thank you ultimately that, um, that, that you are very in tune with those, uh, those feelings, God, you gave your son to for that ultimate sacrifice, and we're thankful for that. So God, as we open your word, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago... Uh, I got up early one morning, which happens almost every morning. I'm the first one up, and uh, I make my way into the kitchen, and I recognized that there was a stranger in our house that was slithering in the kitchen, and uh, which is close to our back door, so I knew how he got in. I mean, it was he hadn't been there for long, hopefully, but uh, you know, in in the in the midst of that kind of chaos in that moment, recognize there's a snake in the house. I didn't scream, I promise, but for some reason the kids got up and uh, they're all come scurrying in there. They're trying to check out what's going on and I'm trying to figure out what the best way to remove the snake from the house and destroy it. And, uh, you know, they're trying to not get too close, but also they want to get a little closer to see it. And, and so in that moment, there's just this realization that like, I can't just go and make, finish making my coffee, go sit down on the couch for a little bit, open up the Bible and read it, and I'll get to that problem later. No, I had to deal with the intruder that was in our house, that, that little snake, you know, that was about maybe that long. And uh, before all his little buddies decided, they, they too wanted to come in. See, our house is not an environment that is welcoming to, we're not a, a snake-friendly environment in our house. Uh, there is a place where they belong, and it is not inside of our house. If I were to ignore the problem there, then it would create more problems for me and my family. So I, one way or another, got the snake outside, and as you should do to just about every other snake, you crush his head and make sure he never breathes another breath, right? See, in that moment, you have to come to the realization that, uh, and this is nothing, you know, too crazy. You have to confront whatever danger or any danger that comes into the house. You can't just sit back, observe, you know, calculate the best approach. You just have to, to confront it. Because see, there's more danger if we delay or ignore the problem than it is just to confront it in that moment. 
And the same is true in the church. See, if, if you go back um, and look at the early church, we have this mindset. I think we get stuck on Acts chapter 2, where everybody had everything in common, and they were meeting the needs, and, you know, everybody, they were, if there was a need in the church, they would contribute to it, and it was just this harmonious moment. It was beautiful, and that's the picture we want in the church. But I think with that, we think that the early church was, was just so fine-tuned and just operated perfectly, and they really didn't have all the problems that maybe we see today, or maybe the church is uh, just another uh, 10 or 20 years later after the early church faced, but that is not true. The early church faced the same problems and had the same kind of issues that we're still dealing with today. And, and, and it's a beautiful picture. God has carried it all the way through, but he's used uh, the leaders in the church um, uh, to protect it. Um, there are times in, in church life where there, are, there is what I would call dangerous teaching that creeps in. And, and I'm not saying that that is anybody in this room here, that, that we have dangerous teaching here. I, that's not what I'm saying here. But I'm, I'm going I'm to explain it here in just a minute, that there is dangerous teaching out there. And it's, there are times in our life when maybe not our individual faith is under attack, but, but faith in general, kind of this umbrella term on a large scale is under attack because of errors in the teaching that is being taught in the churches. And that is true throughout church history. And in those times, the church leaders were called to stand up and to, uh, to face that and to confront the issue. And, and we have instruction on that, and believe it or not, in the scriptures. In this little book of Jude, if you want to go ahead and turn there, you go all the way to Revelation, turn one page back. And that's all it's going to take is one page for, for good old Jude. Jude calls himself a servant of Jesus and the brother of James which would also make him the half-brother of Jesus. But he doesn't consider himself that. Because if you remember early on, uh, Jesus' family, especially his brothers, kind of had a hard time following him. It really wasn't until his death and burial and resurrection that they kind of jumped on board and became leaders in the church, which is understandable. Some of you who have older brothers, you would not just follow them with your life, would you? And I think Jude was the same way. He was a servant of Jesus. He said, to those who are called, who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. That's who he's writing to. So that's all of us here who are in Christ. He gives them this, this little blessing. And watch what he does. He says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. So what he is doing here is setting up what they will need in order to do the thing that he is going to call them to do. Um, let, me, let me continue. He said, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. So what he is calling them to do is to contend for the faith. What they need is mercy, peace, and love in order to do that. Now, what's interesting to me is if, if maybe if I was going to write this and call the church to stand up and to contend for the faith, I would use words like, you know, be strong and courageous or be bold in the faith and, 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 and to confront it quickly. But that's not what he is, he is pouring out to them. He calls them to mercy, peace, and to love. Because those are actually the elements of faith that we need to be able to confront these things in the way that Jesus wants us to confront them. 
And we will need them multiplied just as, like, just as they did, that they would be multiplied to you. So you notice Jude wanted to write a, a specific letter about salvation. And he says that, I was eager to write to you about salvation, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. So he had this letter in mind. He realized there was an issue in the church that needed to be dealt with. It was a, a more pressing issue. How many times have we had to do that in our lives? There was one thing that we would have loved to share with these people about the common salvation that we all experience, kind of a feel-good message, and it's definitely beneficial and encouraging, but there was something maybe more pressing that I actually needed to say that's going to be a lot harder to say. That's what he's calling them to, to contend for the faith. The church, those who are called, loved by God, and kept for Jesus Christ needed to contend for the faith. So what's he talking about there, contend for the faith? Well, the word contend means to agonize. So it's the picture of this devoted athlete in the Olympic Games who has prepared his body and he is in the game. And so you work that hard to get into the game. You don't just slack off in the race. You run with everything that you have, right? And that is the picture of agonizing, contend for the faith, to run, to confront. Uh, it is active. It's not passive. Um, and the faith, he's not talking about our individual faith, that, that, that is back and forth. I'm struggling in my faith. That's not what he's talking about. The, the faith here is this umbrella term for a, a body of doctrine that the early church, that God gave the apostles to teach the early church and, and that would guide them into the truth. Um, and it's found in the truth of the scriptures. To be clear, there is not another uh, document out there that, that outlines this body of doctrine, it is found all in the Word of God, okay? That's what he gave them. It was through the, through the, the apostles, he gave them the Word, this, the faith, and the apostles gave that to the church, all right? These things, and then we get from that, we get these things like justification by faith and salvation in Jesus alone, and, um, and the list goes on. And so Jude points out, that, uh, remember, he, he was going to write this one letter, but there's a more pressing issue because there are false teachers who have snuck their way in. They're there. They've been there. Nobody's doing anything about it. It's time to deal with this. He says, verse 4, some people, for some people who, who were designated for this judgment long ago, have come in by stealth, and they are, they are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. So these false teachers had crept in and, and taught in a way that played on the grace of God in such a way that, that they could, sensuality is, is operating by the flesh. So, so they felt like they were good with God and they could do whatever they wanted to and God would still, they could still go, God, you're gracious to me. He's going to. So before the act, before they sinned, they thought God's going to his grace is going to cover this. So they, they turned the grace of God into sensuality. Their lifestyle did not did not match up to uh, their teaching there. And we still have this going on even today that no matter how I live, God is going to 
be gracious and forgive me. He still loves me even though I don't live for him. And really deep down at the heart of it, the question is, it may not come to the surface every time, but the question is, did God really say whatever? Which is where, where do we find that? All the way back in the beginning. Did God really say? This was a big issue in the early church. And in, in a way, they denied Jesus Christ. One, by the way they lived, that they, they were teaching these things. And, and, he, and Jude's real clear. He he's, goes into a good bit of detail here that their lifestyles, they were arrogant, that they were only there for themselves. And so in that way, they were denying Jesus Christ. But they would also directly deny him. Oh, he's not the son of God. Oh, he's not really who he said he is. Are you sure he was resurrected? Those kind of things. They would deny Jesus Christ. And these were in the church, okay? Not just, not from the outside, not, not some organization separate from church that is attacking the church. These people had infiltrated. They had come in by stealth, which means the leaders of the church didn't recognize that they were already there, which was maybe the bigger issue what happened that these guys are in the midst? What, what is it about the membership process or whatever? How, how did these guys get into the church? And, how, and why are they teaching this false doctrine or this false gospel? So he had to write this letter. And I can't think, I can't help but think that in Jude's time, I think, uh, you know, it, it would have been a letter that was circulated around or, or maybe that, I mean, obviously they're in the church, so they know directly who these people are. And they can con confront them directly. But, but, and I thought, in our time, you know, how does this kind of play out? Well, there are influences all over the world, especially in our country right now. And, and we're all connected. At that time, you know, it was just kind of isolated to the areas where, wherever these false teachers were. They could get into the church, they could, but it was a little bit more isolated. Now we're connected with, you know, church in Los Angeles or church in Portland, wherever they are, we have access to their teaching, their doctrine. And, and even more, if you're scrolling through social media, there are algorithms that know what catch your attention and they'll push certain content towards you. And that content may be okay, but how do we know? And so all of a sudden I realized, yeah, there's, there's false teaching creeping in in a lot of different ways in our day and time too. And we can't directly confront that because it may be across the country or across the world, but we've got to be able to recognize it at least. Two, two areas that we've seen in the last, I don't know, a couple decades probably. Uh, one of them is the prosperity gospel. These, both of these we've heard of. The prosperity gospel kind of plays off of if I have enough faith, God's going to bless me in this certain way. If, if I have enough faith for you, then maybe he can bless you. And then it turns into kind of a giving game of if I give enough, you can't outgive God. God's going to return the, the gift back on you. That's prosperity gospel. There's another one called the uh, social justice gospel that, that really we just need to serve. Really we just need to meet needs that we recognize around us. And the, the more needs we meet, the more the gospel is able to spread. Because, and, and I've even heard him say like, well, how do you share the gospel with someone who is barely alive or starving to death? And both of these are really tied back to good works. 
If I can just feel faithful enough or give enough, if I can just meet enough needs, then, then maybe God's going to do something. Maybe he'll be happy with me. We've got to be able to recognize these things. And um, when this teaching is, has crept into the church by stealth, we've got to be able to recognize it. Uh, Spurgeon, he said this about false doctrine. He said, I cannot endure false doctrine, however neatly it may be put before me. Would you have me eat poisoned meat because the dish is of the choicest meats? He wouldn't, he wouldn't put up with it. And neither should we. So, so that kind of raises the question, how do we identify this kind of a teaching? And then, and then how do we know who is doing this kind of teaching? I know that's a big question. And like I said, it's all over the place. So how do we know? So first thing, how do we identify uh, the teacher? How do we identify them? First thing uh, under that is you have to carefully examine the teaching. See, a lot of times we just take the word that is being taught at face value. You have a responsibility in this, to take what is being taught, to match it. Where does this come from? Don't just assume that what is being taught is the truth. Uh, Jude describes these teachers as waterless clouds in, in verse 12. Waterless clouds. They, they come by, they look good, they look like they're going to you know, shower a rain on us and, and do something good in our land, they just pass by and nothing ever happens. Carefully examine every teaching. And then you have to know who is teaching. Know who is teaching. What, and not just, you know, what church are they in, you know, or that, what, how, what are they affiliated with. It, it's best if you can know them on a personal level. And I know that's not always possible, especially if somebody's halfway around the world. But, but you can look at what, what does their life produce, that's really what he attacks. He spends most of his letter describing what these uh, teachers, what their life is producing. And the number one thing that he calls them is ungodly. They're ungodly teachers. And so look at what is their life producing? Are they humble? Are they obedient to God? Back to verse 12, he describes them as, as trees late in August and fruitless. That they're, they're really... As, as charismatic as they are, as much as we may enjoy listening to them speak and how they teach, what is being produced by that teaching? And what is their life producing? Jude calls them ungodly, calls them dangerous reefs in verse 12. They only look after themselves. And he was clear that the ungodly would face their own judgment, which means that you and I, although, yes, we're called to, in, in contending for the faith, we clear up the error in the teaching. Our role is not to destroy that teacher, to wipe them out. Now, we expose it, yeah. But ultimately, the judgment is God's. That's why Ephesians 6, 12 says we don't have to fight against flesh and blood, but against what? Against principalities. And the list goes on. Uh, there's a way to confront, again, going back to with mercy and peace and love. Um, but in order to do that, you have to, um, you have to know what the truth actually is. 
And, and, and there are certain things, there are essential doctrines in our faith, and, and it would take us a pretty good bit of time. We'll do this one day. To, to line out what are all those essential doctrines. On those essential doctrines, we're talking, when we're talking about those, in essentials, we have unity. We say that a lot of times. And, and, and then there are non-essential doctrines that kind of guide us. And, and they're, they're, it's not that they're less important, but they're not according to salvation. They don't guide us in the way of salvation. So in essentials, we have unity. We have to be united on that. In non-essentials, there's liberty. We, we, can, we can disagree on those things. We're talking about here the essentials. You have to know what truth is. So contending for the faith means that you must know the truth. And uh, what is the basis for the truth in which we you know, live our lives? And if you know the truth, you'll be able to see the lie better. And it's kind of like the guys who, uh, who deal with counterfeit money on a regular basis. I don't know if you've looked up any of that. It's, it's kind of interesting. But if you, if you had two uh, $10 bills, I think we got a picture of it up here. I'm going I'm to show you real quick. Two $10 bills. Can you tell which one is counterfeit, which one is not? I'll give you just a second. Neither can I. But uh, what they tell me is the bottom one is counterfeit. Now, the reason I can't tell the difference is because I don't have training in, in the ability to tell the difference. And, and it goes back to, you know, you have to, they spend so much time studying the real thing. And then you can be able to recognize the differences and, 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 and spot the counterfeit. And obviously, if it's counterfeit, it has no value. It's the same way. You have to know the truth. And so there's a little bit of work involved in this. You have to train yourselves to know the truth, um, to be able to spot the counterfeit and the false teaching that can creep in so easily. So let's go there. What makes the truth the truth? Now we're kind of getting philosophical, right? Hold on tight. What makes the truth? No, it's not going to get that deep. The first thing that makes the truth truth is, did God say it? Where does the authority of the truth come from? Does it come from my opinion? Because let me tell you, it's real easy for a preacher to stand before you and before his church and to just to share opinion. And you can rattle off a whole sermon of opinion. But you got to get back to where does this truth come from? Did God actually say that? Remember the first temptation we referenced it earlier in the garden. What did the, the serpent tempt him with? The one question, did God really say? He attacked the truth. Can you back up the teaching with Scripture? Where, where, where does the authority of the teaching come from? Did God say it? Second is, does it align with God's character? So here's what I mean by that. Um, sometimes we will teach in such a way because our, we're compassionate and we want to show love to those who are hearing. But in, in, in doing so, we will sacrifice the truth, uh, even though uh, our intentions are good there. And, and while, uh, you know, love is definitely a characteristic of God, we cannot sacrifice the truth. And, and it goes both ways. Sometimes we will teach the truth in a way that is not loving, that does not reflect the character of God. I saw a video this past week. It was part of that social media scrolling. It threw a video at me, and, and it was a teaching. Probably the, the main point was somewhat true, but the way in which it was taught 
was in, in an unholy way. There were references that were unholy. And so the, 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 the whole point was lost because it was just referencing worldly. Does it, ref, does it uh, reflect God's character? Is it holy? Is it loving? Is it kind? Is it truthful? And then finally, what does this teaching produce? What does it produce? Remember what they were teaching. They were, they were turning the grace of God into sensuality. So the, the, the outcome of their teaching was that their people were not living a holy life anymore, but they were living a, a fleshly life and, and just assuming that God's grace is going to cover them. That was the outcome. Jude really hammers this really all throughout the letter here. Verse 16, he says, These people are discontented grumblers living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. What does the teaching produce? So he's revealed the problem and exposed these uh, people behind it. Now what do you do? Now what he's, So it's one thing to confront the teacher, but then you got the people who are not the teachers, but the hearers who have maybe bought into this. What do you do with that? So what is Jude's recommendation for dealing with this false teaching? Uh, Verse 20 and 21, he says this, But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, for eternal life. And in my Bible, I underlined, uh, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's, in, that's the main point there. Keep yourselves in the love of God. So what do we do? We keep ourselves in the love of God. And don't miss how. We got to go back up just a second. As you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, there is a responsibility in this that you would build yourselves up, not just that you would be more faithful, but that you would have a foundation of faith that is not shaken by false teaching. As you build yourselves up, that is your responsibility. Having a vibrant spiritual life is one of the most important disciplines you can have. And he says, praying in the Holy Spirit, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm with you on this. Most, Most of my prayers are for some of you who are going through whatever issue are for my family, praying that, 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 you know, whether it's confessing sin or, you know, most of it is, is personal to me. But I think what he's saying here, praying in the Holy Spirit means that we take the time to let our heart align with God's character, that we slow down in our prayers. We don't just rattle off all these requests, but we spend time and we reflect on who he is and we let our hearts join him where he is, not try to pull him into whatever our mess is. That's praying in the Holy Spirit, that we would align our hearts with him. That's the Spirit's work. And then that we would keep ourselves in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. God's love is different than just a feeling. I'm not talking about that you would have a constant emotional feeling towards God that would draw you in. Although, that's, that's a very small piece of it. That you would be devoted to him, that he would stir your heart, because you're not going to do anything that your heart is not stirred towards. But what he's saying is, the love of God pushes us to obedience to him. That, there, that he is the greatest love. So although I'm hesitant to confront 
and to contend for the faith, I realize God has called me in his love and out of his love to be obedient to him. And so the greatest love, keep yourself in the love of God. What is most loving, to be nice to people um, or to show them the truth? It reminds me of Revelation chapter 2. Uh, the church of Ephesus, he said this, You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. That's exactly what Jude is dealing with here. But this I have against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. They had fought the good fight but lost the love of God. And then they were waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget that we need his mercy. And then he tells us how to deal with people. Verse 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now there's three, three different categories here. First, first is uh, have mercy on those who waver. Those who waver are kind of caught in between. Like they, they maybe know the truth, but they're hearing this and they're considering it. They're kind of back and forth. And, and in that moment, the best thing that we can do is point them back to all of the benefits that they have in Jesus Christ. So take them to Ephesians chapter 1 and have them underlined every time you see in him and then write out what the benefit is there. Ephesians, uh, just one of Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. In him... We have the fullness. And so why would we waver with anything else? Take them to Ephesians 1. But have mercy on those who waver. Snatch others out of the fire. Just like the angels had to take Lot back in the Old Testament, had to take Lot by the hand and drag him out of Sodom. Do you remember that? They had to drag him out of the fire. That's the picture that we have there. And it's funny that this came up. This weekend we were camping and uh, we woke up yesterday morning, and, and you know, dad's always got to, for some reason, got to get the fire going again, I guess, to cook breakfast or whatever. So I got the fire going, and everybody gets up, and we're all sitting around it. Well, all of a sudden, one of our neighbors had this little dog, like a little lap dog. I mean, maybe this big. And the thing, it's one of those little hyper ones, you know, that just, they're just constantly moving. So it, it came over, sniffed all the trees. But all of a sudden, so, and we had this fire pit. It was up, maybe had this high off the ground. And all of a sudden, we're sitting there, and the little dog jumps up on the edge of the fire pit. And all of us are like, oh, no. We reckon, and then the thing jumps straight into the fire. And we're like, no, 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 somebody get, you know, we're all scrambling, falling out of our chairs, trying to get this little dog. And luckily, he was fine. He didn't get hurt. He was fine. He jumped out. We grabbed him. We took him back to the, to the owners. We're like, okay, this little thing just jumped in the fire. You might want to put him on a leash or something. Um, but what if in that moment, with that little dog, we were all just sitting there enjoying our coffee, enjoying our breakfast, and the dog jumps in the fire, and we just sit there. And we think, man, I wonder if that's right. I wonder if that's okay. You think you'll be all right? What should we do about it? No. You snatch them. You jump on it. Get them out of there. And, and some of you parents, you know this feeling. Because you've seen your kids walk into the fire. You know the destruction that they're heading into or have been in. And you would love 
the opportunity to just snatch them out, just pull them back into this faith. That's what he's talking about here. Can't just sit back. Then he says, have mercy with fear, hating even the clothes defiled by the flesh. Don't get too close or you too might fall into the, the same temptation. It's a dangerous path. In dealing with people who have strayed into false teaching, we have to be careful that we don't fall into that same error. Have mercy, but be cautious. And so, so what is the best? You know, it's, it'd be really easy just to, to not get in the game, to just to step back, let somebody else deal with it, um, stay comfortable. Um, the commentary I was reading said this, it's a dangerous thing to live for Christ in an atmosphere of false teaching and seductive morals. It's a hazardous thing to try to rescue men from the go- for the gospel out of such an environment. If you get too near the fire, it will burn you. If you get too near the garment stained by the flesh, it will defile you. Is withdrawal the answer then? No. Advance against the forces of evil. Face the dangers involved so long as you are strong in the Lord's might. And that's where Jude leaves us here. He gives us, you remember he started with a beautiful blessing. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Here's where he ends it. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, power and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. See, he didn't leave them with just this problem. He lifted up their eyes, and that's what we have to do, too. We have to realize that he is able, that we are not doing this on our own strength, by our own ability. He is able to make us stand. And the only way that we can stand in his presence with joy is through his son, Jesus Christ, and his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the only way. And so we just need to lift our eyes from that. We need to know the truth. Just like what we sang earlier, there is only one way and build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Turn our eyes to Jesus. He's able to protect us from stumbling. He is the one who makes us stand and it is for his glory. It is not for our glory that we would contend for the faith, but for his and, um, and that's our challenge for this morning. That we would be able to recognize what is truth and where this false teaching may be creeping in and contend for the faith. And I realize that this morning, this message and, and, and this letter that Jude wrote is mostly for the church. That we would stand firm, that we'd build ourselves up. I want to encourage you to do that. But I realize, too, that not everybody in this room has placed their faith in Jesus, has, has even begun the faith journey. So I want to encourage you, too. There is only one way, and it's through Jesus. He paid the price for our sins. He is what is, who is able to make us stand. He is the one who uh, takes away all our sin and shame. So we have to first put our faith in him. So if that's you this morning, I would encourage you, don't leave this place without doing that. So as I pray, would you pray with me? We'll close out the service. Father, we thank you that your word is true and it always will be, that you've promised that. And I thank you that 
uh, you've you've not left us to our own devices. You've not um, you just left us to to figure it out on our own, to spot false teaching, to contend for the faith. But you're right here with us. You are the one who is able to make a stand. So we thank you for that. God, I pray for anybody here who hasn't placed their faith in Jesus that they would do so right now. That they would surrender every part of their mind, heart, and soul to you and would walk with you all the days of their life. That we would encourage them. That we would walk alongside them. Father, we thank you for your word and its truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.